This episode is brought to you by Hopelessly Lost and Found Playscapes by Hazmat. Studies have demonstrated that on special days like Christmas and birthdays, youngsters get 90% more playtime out of the boxes their presents come in than the presents themselves. That's why Hazmat, the massive soulless toy and game manufacturer you've come to trust with your Inklebiter's happiness, invented the massive pallets of corrugated cardboard boxes for you to put under the tree or on the presents table, delivered in a great big cardboard box. But what about the importance of physical play when the tykes are at school? Well, Hazmat's childhood psychologists have also determined that budding scholars will readily skip out on recess for the chance to dig through the bins of flotsam in the schools lost and found. And that's why modern schools are paving over their fields of useless and frankly dangerous swing sets and jungle gyms to install Hazmat's hopelessly lost and found playscapes. This ingenious child's wonderland consists of a series of retrofitted porta-potties filled to the absolute brim with rejections from Goodwill stores and left-behinds of neighborhood yard sales. We all know kids love collecting things, and yours will make friends trading with them in hopes of finally acquiring that other shoe or music cassettes to fill out that cassette tape shelf or every breed of Furby. Is that a raccoon? Tell the kids they should focus on finding gloves to start with. And thank you, Hopelessly Lost and Found Playscapes by Hazmat for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. James, I should start this time, and, and we should apologize, too, for being a touch late, because when we tried to think about recording the comments for this episode a week or two ago, this is what James sounded like. Hi, Greg. Oh, crap. So he's better now. Uh, and you want to say hi, James? Uh, hello there, kids out there in TV land. I've yes, a nice a, smoky voice. <laughs> so I don't know if he caught something in Chicago or what, but went home and was yeah. not feeling well and was definitely not sounding well. But you're better now. Yeah, yeah. I picked you're, up a souvenir in Chicago, so that's. So you were you were telling me your your wife said you sounded like Bobby Hill, and I, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought oh maybe this is a little bit of uh, Wolfman Jack, maybe a little bit. No, no, no. You sound like Bobby Hill, and, and <laughs> yeah, you're saying yeah, no, you don't sound like that. But that's See, because you're I, a very nice person, and she is no, perfect. no. Emily should be happy. <laughs> she should be like, oh no, it's a it's a cool voice. I like it. But yeah, so that's that's why we're a little late with this one. But otherwise, we're going to try and get back on track. Part of the reason I think I'm slightly more self-conscious of it is because I know the Azabo Soup guys are doing that YouTube channel thing, and there's a Discord right. for that. And one of the, of course, I searched us in there. Of course I did. And um, <laughs> one of the people was like, oh, it's great. They just go way slower. Like, maybe they'll get done by 2050 or something. Yeah. So, and I was like, yes, but see, we we go slow to savor every little piece. That's but right. trying to get back to two chapters a month would be would be nice. And a lot of that's... Yeah, there's lots of stuff going on, but right, but. right. I should say, in, in some ways, we mentioned this before. In some ways, for this particular volume, it has helped me <laughs> to be able mm -hmm. to sit and think about this. I write, I write out the skeletons sometimes weeks and weeks before we actually record them, 
uh, uh, skeletons, by the way, is basically every single thing that I'm saying right now. And <laughs> because otherwise, you know, if I, if I try to say it, speak extemporaneously, it's just, um, uh, 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 well, you've heard it, Craig, and I'll write those in advance and then I'll come up with stuff, you know, weeks and weeks, weeks later. And I was going to say, Hey, Craig, what's about this? Yeah. So, and I mean, useful. I'm kind of the opposite. In fact, you had written this up and we were just talking. I tried to sort of do both parts of us together and it just <laughs> not good. So now I, I have to riff a little bit more. I have notes. I definitely have notes, but, but yeah. Um, oh, right. first, the most important thing. So we have actually gotten a lot of comments about my pizza choice for you about yeah, Giordano's. Not everyone agreed. No, ma- most right people idea. did not agree. And I will say we did try Lou Malnati's first, but either the app wasn't working or they were closed or something like that. So um, but otherwise, you know what? I'm just going to go on record. I like Giordano's. I know it's <laughs> I know it's like the one that people are always like, it's too sellout pizza. It's too much corporate, <laughs> corporate deep dish. But I don't care. I kind of like it. Well, it was good. I enjoyed it. Okay. So. Um, but also we do have some ideas coming up about we had mentioned, should we do something at Worldcon, which will be in Chicago? We did post a little poll on Facebook. So if you're not on Facebook, you can see what some of the ideas there are we're throwing around, but got about 15 ish people saying that they really would like to go. Um, a lot of people saying they're going to go whether or not we do it. Yeah. And we, and we had some people's, maybe some names, uh, people would hear know of yep. that in theory have agreed to actually go as well. Yeah. That think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm trying to see if we really can get people we've interviewed, um, and if we can get maybe some will together. interview. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, and so we'll see if we can do that, but we're also still looking, trying to get information on ArmadilloCon and some other things just for, for other options to do it. No reason we couldn't do both just go yeah. and see if people Why are there. But, yeah. They can't keep us from going, you know, Greg. Exactly. But the reason I bring it up is not just to say, hey, if you haven't checked that out and want to speak up and, and see if you'd be interested, please take it, take a look. But also, if you have ideas for other cons that are around you and that are close to big places where lots of people might come, airline hubs in particular, let us know because right. it would be fun to, just an excuse to, for me, it's an excuse to travel somewhere <laughs> other than just for my kids' games all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, that's very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, he has to go off and attend sports ball conventions. It's yeah, kind of and, poor, and, Craig, in California. It's so sad. <laughs> but um, but okay, so we are ready. We're back. We have a long episode for you this time. And first, we have lots of comments to get to. Uh, yeah, let's see. We have uh, corrections. Hey, you was wrong. You was wrong. In response to my theory that I really do believe that the thing chained uh, in the Manape's cave is the ogre from the tale of the student and his son that Severian read to Jonas in the antechamber, Finnegan Matthews. Lots of fun at Finnegan's wake. Said on Twitter. Love the podcast, as always. Wonderful maze of ideas. Aha. My only objection to that theory that Erebus is the one chained beneath the man-apes is this quote from Earth that seems to physically locate him in the icy south. And he offered a quote from uh, Earth of the New Sun. You know what's happened to the old sun. It is dying. I don't mean that it's about to go out like a lamp at midnight. That would take a very long time. The wick if you can think of it so, has been trimmed by only the width of a hair, and the corn has rotted in the fields. You don't know it, but the ice in the south is already gathering new strength. 
To the ice of ten Chiliads will be added the ice of the winter now almost upon us, and the two will embrace like brothers and begin their march upon these northern lands. Great Erebus, who has established his kingdom there, will soon be driven before them with all his fierce, pale warriors. He will unite his strength with the Baez, whose kingdom is in the warm waters. With others, less in might but equal in cunning, they will offer allegiance to the rulers of the lands beyond Earth's waste, which you call Asia, and once united with them, will devour them utterly. Yeah. Well, you know, very good. Uh, on Reddit, Christopher Taylor... occurs with this quote, and he has more to say as well. He says, I do like the proposed connection between the thing in the Manape's cave and Erebus timeline-wise. I could imagine the time of its imprisonment being connected to the attack on Nessus that leads to construction of the wall. I actually like that too. It, it might actually explain why he'd be chained just outside the wall north of Nessus. But then uh, he says what Finn says uh, almost simultaneously. I would question whether the cave entity was Erebus itself, because Erebus is still referred to as sending raiding ships toward the Commonwealth from the south with skeletal crews, another alignment of Erebus with death. However, if the Megatherians are indeed capable of dividing into multiple entities and or if the Megatherians have some sort of hive mind thing going on, then, of course, Erebus can be in multiple places at once. Yeah, and it's it's still too... It, it often sounds like, you know, talking about him personally is right. sort of different from where his forces come from or where the influence stems from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. But, but it's, it's still true. And, and Christopher has anticipated part of my own response. Uh, Erebus could be defeated in the past or the future or in some uh, Borgesian garden of forking paths labyrinth slash string mm -hmm. theory ever splitting many worlds timeline battlefield. <laughs> and then he was chained in time of the dying sun. Also, you know, his, quote, kingdom does not require his physical presence. He has the ability to send out his thoughts and influence his followers. Asians claim to follow Erebus as much as Abaya. He could have armies in Antarctica as well as the north. As Jonas says, they have the ability to send out their thoughts. And Christopher, uh, but Craig, he liked your association of the ogre Megatherian as a walker in the corridors of time, which... You know, you can kill him, but you still might encounter an earlier version of him in the future. And if he knows what you did, he, you know, he might even exact revenge. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He liked your association with Cthulhu and uh, Riala, I guess, or I'm not going to try. Is it, it, is it Relay or Rila? Relaya, Relaya. I never, Relaya. I never I, that one, Relay, really, I never knew that one. <laughs> it's just, well, I mean, he, he, he openly said that he only created those words because they're supposed to sound like something a human voice would never make up. <laughs> so anyway, he's so, yeah, him uh, waiting and dreaming, uh, Cthulhu waiting and dreaming. He says on the question of how Erebus could be, still be a threat if he was dead, he agrees that in Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu is also both very much a threat and very much dead. Mm. Or as it was put in the story, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. However, I think it is much more important to remember that this quote that Finn and Christopher are citing, Severian is saying this when he's imprisoned during the time of Typhon's rule. And I suppose this is not more than a couple decades or less when the Asians pushed almost to the citadel. 
I wonder if the pale, freckled, blonde, and redheads of the South, Rocious people, are the descendants of those invading Arabist armies from the South. And this could, in fact, identify the approximate time when the ogre was defeated. Remember, the ogre's island, seen from a Hamlet's Mill perspective, appears to be in the southern circumpolar region that is just above Antarctica. And Christopher is thinking along these lines as well. He says, in terms of whether the story of the ogre is literally inspired by the chaining of Erebus, you spoke about the difficulties of lining that up with Severia's recorded history. However, the timeline is a lot simpler if one presumes that the, quote, youth flesh from dreams in this story is not Severian, but Typhon. Uh, yeah, I must confess that potential held great appeal for me as well, and we'll get to why that is when we get to the Brown Book story of Spring Wind. However, Craig, uh, it is Princess Noctua who convinces me that this is Severian. Uh, she's the daughter of Night, and I think associated with Black Kerr, as Hesiod called her, the personification of violent death. She's of the same substance as the hero. This, I, for me, for me, this has got to be Thecla, or Thea, as I personally understand her. She's the daughter of night because she's dead. She's a personification of Kerr because of how she died. She imparts her secret to, uh, in the same way that Thecla imparted the secret of how to escape the antechamber. So, Severian. <laughs> if we assume this is a story of how Erebus was defeated in the time of Emar, that Severian, the time walker, helped defeat Erebus, perhaps before Emar himself became Autark, but after Typhon's death, Hey, Craig, maybe the youth in the story is Emar. Then that... I kind of knew you were going to bring that up. That have <laughs> but then that would tie in with other expositions we've given about a war in the past where the Megatherian forces made it all the way to the Citadel and explains perhaps why Emar and his predecessors didn't know what the Man-Ape's cave was. Erebus was chained in the far north beyond the Citadel, and this was when Nessus was far, far south of the Citadel. Yeah, and that's, by the way, one thing I was thinking, too, because he he says later that he thinks he knows what it is. But I, I was trying to figure out, does that mean that one of the memories that he got from the Autark tells him? Or is he saying that he still doesn't know, which means that none of the Autarks really knew what it was? Because that, that, Yeah, that's, all, that's my assumption. That's always yeah. that was, in fact, if, if you recall back in Chapter 8, that was my big puzzle is that it does, he's not getting this knowledge from the from the Autarks. He's getting it. Okay. Somehow he's deriving it some other way. From other ways, so, yeah. yeah. But let's see, Mike uh, Farrar. Far your arms from me. Is thinking that perhaps the war of the ogre is in Severian's chronological future. He says something a lot like a Navis Caput is in Guile at the end of Citadel. Could be Erebus is doing marching orders before it heads south. Also, there's 10 years of war between the Citadel and the start of Earth. Well, yeah, I was wondering, since that is the big, at least in, in the first New Sun, that's the, the only really big naval time that Severian's actually on a boat. I mean, we get way more in Earth of right. Severian being on a boat, but it seemed, I don't know, I still assume that anything it was supposed to be suggesting was for those first four books. But Right. Well, you know, anything's possible. But given what Jonas says about the size of the Megatherians, I think anything that could fit in the Gaia would be too small for Erebus. Mm -hmm. But if I'm wrong and the ogre is smaller, then, you know, that's possible. Uh, Christopher 
also sees that due to the Earth of the New Sun, quote, that he felt made the Erebus being the ogre problematic, uh, Christopher says that he could see it instead being another Megatherian, like uh, Ariok. Mm, well, Ariok is one of Milton's demons in Paradise Lost, a fallen angel. So he's in hell. He's in the underworld. So, you know, it works as the defeated ogre and chained below ground and having a labyrinth in the underworld uh, below the horizon in much the same way that Erebus does. However, it mm. it pleases me that a lot of people find the connection between the ogre and the chain thing as credible because for me, it merely feels right that the chain guy and the ogre are the same considering what Severian records. Um, but I don't have any hard, hard as I see, connections between the two. Erebus as the ogre is different. To me, the connection is, is stronger. The southern circumpolar region appears to be the island of the ogre. It's over Antarctica, where Erebus forces or were, as we said at one time, and where there is a mountain of that name. The mythical Erebus was the consort of night. And so the Megatherian Erebus's name is another connection to the ogre. And Gene Wolf pointed this out, like I said, in Castle of the Otter. So for me, it works like this. The, the chain thing seems best described as the ogre. The ogre is surely most definitely Erebus. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, the chain thing is Erebus. It's a transitive property of Gene Wolf. So. <laughs> and as usual with syllogisms, it's all in the premises. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. that, it's that first one you got to you got to convince people of. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's uh, you know, once again, it's it's theory Jenga. So <laughs> uh, finally, uh, Christopher Taylor has more things to say about the story association with Theseus. He says Noctua is like Ariadne, as we pointed out, but I don't think we named her. Uh, Ariadne was Minos's daughter, but Christopher has some other interesting points. Ariadne is the daughter of Pasiphae, who was the daughter of Helios, the son, which is an interesting twist. Since Noctua is the daughter of night, Christopher says, I don't know if anything is made of this in the original Greek tradition, if anything. Ariadne and the Minotaur seem to be connected to stellar rather than solar motifs. I do find it interesting that Wolf's reworking makes no mention of Theseus's abandonment of Ariadne, a pretty significant element of the original. Yeah, Craig, you pointed out that in Theseus, the labyrinth creator was uh, Daedalus mm -hmm. and the Minotaur was the prisoner of the labyrinth. In this case, the ogre is a combination of the two. And unlike them both, the ogre is never a prisoner. But Christopher wouldn't make too much out of that. He says, quote, in the mythic sense, Minos, Daedalus's patron in the building of the labyrinth, and the Minotaur seem to respect aspects of the same individual, making the Minotaur both creator and prisoner. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's true in this case. Yeah, yeah. And that's too, I mean, I think different versions of the myth, kind of their relationship, like Minotaur is prisoner or Minotaur is guard, who's there mm -hmm. yeah, is more. Yeah, regarding the differences between the Theseus story and the Tale of the Student and the Son, I just reiterate that I don't think the story was based on the story of Theseus at all. I think it went the other way. Uh, first a real event, then it became a metaphor for astronomical motions, then someone, some academic or mythographer, perceived in it the story of Theseus and shaded the telling of the story with that in mind. And after that, other academics mistook the story of the monitor in Virginia as a retelling of the story. And the shading were further embedded. 
So the differences are because these were originally very different stories, but the parallels can be seen because as astronomical metaphors, Theseus and this story tell a similar stellar behavior and because the people who retold it perceived the parallels as well. So the end of Theseus was tacked on to this story. And even though it self-evidently did not belong there, a goof, but it might have still been related to something true in the story and that the student, you know, did die. And thus there's that body in the Acropolis. But um, I was so talking I, to- I just want to point out one thing about this, which I think is so cool. And just step back for a second, that from the story, you have deduced an entire sort of history of the story that Wolf had in mind <laughs> for how this thing was created. That is my was, nature. Of course, never put in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, I, this is also where I can see loads of people going like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it if I am a wizard. So no, but know, it's, <laughs> it's cool. It's, I mean, it's, it's the dark the arts. Yes. But you know, yeah. It's, yeah. But uh, I mean, Wolf leaves it open. It does leave that open. Also, uh, Craig, you implied that it might be the case that Mark Aramidi would not be blown away by my theory. And we, I talked with him online, and I think we came to agree that the core problem is that I think this is a historical story with mythology, legend, and literature accreted to it. And Mark sees it as fundamentally literature with other bits of literature attaching to it. Mm -hmm. This is a common problem I've noticed, that theories appear plausible or implausible, depending on how you walk up to it. Uh, like, you know, like that picture. I said, I sent you a picture, Craig, of, of a chihuahua that yeah. <laughs> if it, it's, it's laying down and if it's upside down, if you, if you do it the way it's actually, um, uh, you know, originally placed in the picture, it doesn't look like anything. It looks like some sort of weird pig. And then, and I can't even see the chihuahua in it, but if I turn it upside down, oh yeah, there you go. It's a chihuahua. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's totally right. I mean, the assumption you have towards what the story is doing, I think, changes all kinds of things about what you're going to read into it or what you're going to find plausible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Uh, but people weren't through talking about this episode. Let's see. Uh, on Reddit, Funky said, I just wanted to chime in and point out that the phrase whale road is actually an old English kenning for the sea that appears in Beowulf. And Patrick DeWin on Twitter and Adrian uh, Ian on Facebook also brought this up. Thanks, yes, everyone. I feel incredibly bad that I didn't <laughs> know that because I, I had to read Beowulf many, many times. Okay. I, I had a sense that it might that that it was um kind of a, a reference to uh, Danish uh, poetry, but I, I could not put that little bit of information uh, onto a, the specific story. And uh, yeah, it's with Beowulf. And, and well done. Yeah, good point. Uh, a kinning, uh, Craig, is a figure of speech used for a noun. In this case, a uh, whale wrote means ocean. Uh, a kinning is a colorful term for regular everyday nouns. Uh, but Instead of using the noun itself, you, you call it what it does or ostensibly does or where it's found or its role in the environment. For example, like calling an accountant a bean counter or a big fat thousand page novel a wrist cruncher or calling a child an ankle biter or a rug rat. So the ocean is a whale road. Uh, other kings in Beowulf include sky candle for the sun, uh, ring giver for king. Raven harvest for a corpse, battle sweat for blood, and light of battle for a sword. 
I remember we had a long conversation one time about how the that light there the the sky candle example was a cool mix of metaphor and metonymy and other uses of figurative language. So yeah. if you ever wanted to know what English grad school is like, sometimes it's <laughs> hour long conversations about two words. Yep. <laughs> but it sounds a lot like this. So yes. Let's see. Paul Cook on Facebook also said. So exercise some judgment. Too much broth can spoil the cook. I was listening to the most recent episode of The Tale of Student and Son, and I became aware of something that I assumed everyone else already thought or knew. You two were discussing the damage to the Son of Earth, how the worm was placed there, and who might have done it. And after reading the Long Sun books, I had come to the conclusion that it was Typhon who damaged the Sun when he created the world. I assume that he basically captured and contained a piece of the sun to provide light power for his starship, and in doing so, inadvertently, but irreparably, damaged the sun. I'm sure I remember reading references to that in the long sun, but I would have to locate them. I'm slowly moving through my second read of that series. Did anyone else come to that conclusion? I, I, yeah, I don't know, um, but Typhon being responsible is, uh, it's been out there, but I think most people assume it's something to do with the Yasadis, um, or, uh, possibly Erebus in Anabaya or something like that. But in earth of the new sun, it seems pretty clear that the, it's part of the general Yasadi plan in, in one way or another. Yeah. Well. Instead of now, whether that means they sort of pushed typhon to do it as he was just the sort of mechanic of it i don't i don't know but um but yeah but as far as like actual textual support for typhon being the one to do it i was looking back through earth to see if i could find anything and i couldn't see anybody actually figure it's definitely it. there yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, well it's it definitely comes up as a possibility but as far as you, you know what specific things would make it appear yeah. that way rather than just you know speculation and not sure yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't. I'm always amazed at how much Wolf has thought of when I, when I start stringing Jenga, stringing my theories together. Um, but I don't. I, you know, Long Sun. It, once again, uh, Long Sun, Short Sun. One of my very favorite uh, Wolf novels. Um, I'm. I don't know. I don't know how much Wolf knew about uh, Long Sun, or how much it, it is based on something he thought of, or whether he thought of it later. Yeah, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Nudus Magrudis on Facebook uh, has his own Erebus uh, theory for how he can be underneath the mountain and then chained beneath it. And his idea is, he says, Erebus is some kind of megatherian hermit crab of being lured <laughs> by the waterways into some kind of massive cave, either natural or man-made beneath a mountain. Like all giant beings of Earth, Erebus must grow and live. And so it is filling the niche beneath the man-ape's cave until chaining is merely involved, removing any opportunity for egress. <laughs> and this is That's, a good line, though. There, like a station Cthulhu, great Erebus lies not dead but dreaming until roused by the arrival of the claw. Yeah, claw crustacean. Yeah, so that's 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 creative. I like that one. Uh, so well I also, done, yeah. I like the twist on Cthulhu there too. He's not a big squid. He's a crab. Yeah, he's a crab. What yeah. what would have happened if we had uh, that perspective on the? I, mean, I wonder if there's one of uh, other of uh, Lovecraft's. Let's see, Yasagas is a big slug thing, or yeah. yeah, maggoty thing. I don't know. Lots of sideways walking cultists. <laughs> 
yeah one giant arm and the other desiccated <laughs> in reddit michael andre drisi did not, as I sort of expected, rebut my Erebus ogre man ape cave theory, but he did have some very interesting thoughts about our connection between the tale of the student and his son and the Borges story, the circular ruins, and to my connections to this story and Hamlet's Mill. He says, tangential thoughts. If I recall correctly, Borges has a recurrent trope that the Minotaur is the creator of the maze, but double checking is in order. Uh, yeah, this is true. Uh, Mantis's comment inspired me to suggest for us, uh, Craig, that our next Borges story that we do is mm -hmm. Ibn Hakam al-Bokhari, Murdered in His Labyrinth. Uh, that story has explicit references to the Minotaur as the labyrinth builder. And uh, Michael also notes what, to his mind, is a fundamental conflict between the labyrinths of Hamlet's Mill and Borges. He thinks this conflict uh, is causing distracting static when you talk about them together. <laughs> he says, my problem might be simply this impression, that Hamlet's Mill is about change, and Borges's Labyrinth is about stasis. John Crowley wrote at least three times about the change from one age to another, most directly in Little Big, where, quote, the magic goes away. In ice cream terms, vanilla gives, you, gives way to chocolate, but Borges, in The Circular Ruins and elsewhere, is describing something different, a grinding stasis. Perhaps the grinding stasis in between changes, but still, Hamlet's Mill is ultimately meet the new boss, same as the old boss, which seems to render the changes moot. But at the very least, the chaotic change time is still there. And well, you know, Craig, I can't deny that. That's a credible read. And I think Wolf is often telling the same story on different um, channels. Like mm -hmm. multiple phone conversations talking on the same uh, power line. Yeah. And I agree with Manus that, that, yeah, I think that is definitely the sort of thematic thrust that's different between Borges and, and Hamlet's Mill. But, uh, you know, the way I see Wolf just taking things and kind of using them for his own, it's it's different. Like, like if, if he was writing in the full spirit of Borges um, and Hamlet's Mill, then I think it would be a problem. But I think he's really just, you know, he can take different pieces of them and it's yeah, it doesn't mean that you know hamlet's mill or borges explains what he's doing with it and what it you know quote unquote means if it was then yeah it'd totally be a problem but i think yeah he's a hijacking terrorist for sure yeah yeah it's it's especially with borges i feel like what he's doing is just taking pieces and then rearranging him in his right. own way uh, but Michael wasn't done on the rereading wolf uh subreddit he posted his own tale of the student and the sun First Severian theory, which is fair since I did, you know, take his insightful theory and go running <laughs> into the woods with it, naked and screaming like a madman. Has Michael not had enough of dominating wolf conversation? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, it's entitled uh, Amantis's view on, quote, the student and his son with first Severian interpretation. Uh, he says, I will start with a new son reading of the tale. And this is how the new son, the student's son, will fight over the monstrous enemies, he reads his Erebus, and win a victory of holy light over unholy darknesses. My madness, what a great Hamlet's Mill framing that is. Next, he says, uh, the first Severian angle. Remember, Michael says that his first Severian is merely our Severian, a future version, 10 years ahead of the story. Quote, he is not 
from a different universe, as I say he is. He is not a different incarnation. He has altered history, which alters his own timeline, which causes certain effects that might reasonably be conflated with, quote, different universe and or different incarnation. In the tale, the student is the first Severian. He shapes and forms an idealized younger self, the hero. The hero is successful, and then the student kills himself. Uh, let's see, Michael has two readings of the death. First, matches Severian's initial theory that Epupunchal, the first Severian, sacrifices himself to save our Severian in the battle with Hildegrin. So first Severian believes he's seen his own future, and he looks forward to going out in a blaze of self-sacrificing glory. Alternately, Michael's other reading is simply that the first Severian timeline is being overwritten by our Severian due to the changes first Severian himself is making. So in a metaphorical sense, the first Severian has killed himself to be replaced by an improved first Severian. And that's a pretty tight theory, I have to admit. Yeah, and definitely go check that up to add to your uh, Michael Andrew Ducey <laughs> canon right there, which honestly, reading that made me think, like if he's looking for serious fiction to come out with something with another little book, why not have a Mantis written sort of explicate of all the Brown book stories in loads of detail? Oh, that would be super and, awesome. and put the story contest stories in there too. I mean, if the little chapter by chapter thing sells, then I think that thing would probably sell even more. Yeah. <laughs> more people would be like, wait, what are these things? Just these things. I just want to know what the hell is going on. <laughs> that would be beautiful. Yeah. Boy, I mean, really, there were a lot of comments. Um, people went went much farther than uh, I think we have time to really go into here. Um, Mike Farrar and Michael Andre Derisi on the subreddit uh, had some really interesting conversations. And yeah. and let's be honest, it's a brown book story. It's never gonna be. Yeah, solid. it's going. Yeah, that was the thing. A lot of people just don't believe. They say, "Look, it's a it's a brown book story. It's not historical." Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, on the Patreon page, uh, Stephen F. Johnson had a very good uh, long uh, communication about saying, you know, I'm definitely of a school of the Brown book stories aren't necessarily connected to Severian's personal history. An enormous effort need not be expended finding tenuous connections. Rather, I think the Brown book stories, recumbent legends or not, are Wolf's mechanism for instructing the main characters. A Severian and Thecla, Severian and Jonas, etc., shedding an oblique light on the plot, etc. Oh, not every damn thing needs a connection to the Milky Way galaxy either. <laughs> I well, love that. okay, now you've gone too far. <laughs> have a few new patrons to thank first we have two new journeyman patrons victor trenchard and american c joe thank you guys so much and also an upgrade someone went from journeyman to master so thank you so much matthew eilers and here's your new tag i had an uncle named matthew as always, remember, you can head over to Patreon, where right now we're still working through different Jorge Luis Borges stories that we think had some influence on Wolf, especially in the first couple of books of New Sun. $2 a month gets you in for the journeyman level, which gives you access to all the extra content. A $5 a month or master level subscription just gives you a few little extras here and there as far as stickers or other fun little things. Uh, and Patreon has also started a new thing where you can actually just give a whole year's fee all at once instead of doing the monthly thing. Uh, so a lot of choices over there right now. 
But as always, thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to help out. We really appreciate it, and thanks for keeping us going. All right, we are finally, well, no, we're not done with the Brown Book story. We'll, I'm sure there will be more talking about that as time goes on, but we can move beyond a little further, beyond Jonas, sadly, and now move on to Severian getting further into House Absolute. Yeah, he's finally, yeah, we finally broke away. Uh, it, so long ago, you may remember, uh, Severian left Jonas in the mirrored room, and now he has to move on. So. Yeah. Oh, and total tangent, but uh, John Crowley has a new book coming out, which you can pre-order. And it looks like a nice little take on a sort of medieval fantasy story, if I can. Oh, wow. Chapter 19, Closets. Jonas has just left Severian through the mirrors. I know it's a little hard to believe because we've gone through this whole timey-wimey thing. We actually uh, left Jonas, you know, uh, what, three episodes ago. But in our our world, it's a few months. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But, you know, here we are. We're now Severian, just having watched uh, Jonas leave. And it's still the middle of the night or very early morning, well before the sun comes up. They arrived in the late afternoon, the day before yesterday. It's still around two weeks since Severian left the tower. You know, it's hard to believe, but that's the truth. We're in, a, you know, kind of an equivalent part of this this uh, volume that was like the Shadow of the Torture where Severian meets Agia until mm-hmm. Agilus's execution, where the plot just feels kind of static. Mm-hmm. It, it's all happening maybe in one place or not a whole lot seems to be happening. Severian was supposed to, you know, leave Jonas and then go find Dorcas, right? But no, no, first he has to get his sword and then he has to do this and then he's going to meet so-and-so. And it just feels like, wait a minute, <laughs> when, is, when is he going to get back on to, you know, being the lictor of Thrax? And the antechamber certainly slows things down too. Yeah, just yeah, certainly. being there, the whole mood, the whole terror that goes with it, not to mention the story. Right, exactly. The first one of the book, yeah. Yeah, it feels like the plot is kind of in a quagmire, you know, for some first readers. Many, maybe most. uh, Wolf novels for them seem to have these periods, and it it bugs first-time readers. But on a second read, you can see the story developing because you know where it's going. And I'm thinking, you know, the Book of the Long Sun, where Auk and company are in the caves, everyone complains Mm -hmm. about that. But it's yep. it's different on your subsequent reads. This time, though, you want to stop and look at all the stuff that you are kind of like, okay, okay, whatever. I want to get on with it, know what the sort of payoff of everything is. Whereas mm-hmm. when you reread stuff like this can be even more captivating because you feel like you have a little more time to stop right. and look around and look in the nooks and the crannies and the abandoned closets. Yeah, it's not like you're shopping and trying to buy, you know, we have to get the, get this, get the Christmas presents. And now you can yeah. stop and... You know, just be a tourist and look around. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And now Severian is alone in the house, absolute. He says he hasn't really been truly alone since he entered Baldander's room way back in Chapter 15 of Shadow. Well, there is some truth to that. He was alone after he split with Baldander's, but, you know, he was on the streets of Nessus. And, you know, it's very busy. And he was alone when he traveled to the Man-Ape's cave. Well, I don't know. The Destrier was there. But I do like how he he calls attention to it, right? Because the first line yeah. is, I was alone and I hadn't been. And then he lists the people and he thinks about it all as like 
close connections and relationships to individual people because he mentions Baldanders. Then there had been Dr. Talos, then Asia, right. then Dorcas, then Jonas. And that's kind of cool because it, it just singles out the way that he had been kind of thinking of things as these like series of individual relationship. Yeah. And little guides um, along the way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Little guides are almost like the people are sort of the thematic, I don't know, organization mm -hmm. of the different scenarios. Right. Um, but also that thing about being alone again, I feel like this is one of those chapters that is very, very seriously sort of bookended by a couple different images. Like we get this strong thing about being alone at the beginning. And then when we get to the end, there's a strong thing about symmetry and about mm -hmm. being in a place that, that is symmetrical and that are, have, has perfect halves on each side. Yeah. Which is kind of cool when you're coming out of a, chapter called mirrors um because mm -hmm. in some yeah. ways it does kind of seem like what we've yeah and i'm pushing this a little bit but i think it's kind of cool that what you get here is first of all this feeling of being alone at the beginning but then at the end he's almost in a kind of mirrored situation mm -hmm. where severian himself isn't a reflection but he really emphasizes that this part of the house absolute that there's this this sort of double Right, how things look and how things are there. And we also get, we'll talk about it, but Odillo mentions the second house that gets mm -hmm. not called the second house here, but he does talk about how there are strange hidden corners. And so we do get this sort of second house that is kind of like a reflection of the first, but mm -hmm. it's hidden. Anyway, there's all this imagery of doubled things and reflections, but also in the context of being alone, which means to me that I think you're, you're kind of, saying there's a suggestion here that even when he is alone, he's not alone. There's always some other thing going on, which that could be your first Severian or <laughs> yeah. that could be whatever other forces are here um, sort of watching over him, or there could be some other significance to it. But I just think that that's a cool kind of, it's a weird sort of framing thing in this chapter that otherwise doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of plot, but it has, it does all these kinds of ways. I feel like of sort of re imagining and recontextualizing all the ways that all the stuff that Severian's been through. Yeah. You know, there's like a little, uh, trio of chapters here, right? We have mm -hmm. mirrors, closets, pictures, and I hadn't really noticed that before, but you know, you have mirrors, of course you look into a mirror and then pictures, they're kind of like, can be like a, a mirror. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're, you know, you're looking at a picture of yourself and then these closets, uh, you know, we'll get into it. They, they are, are mirror images of each other. The hallways are mirror images of each other. Mm -hmm. The stairways are mirror images of each other. So, and it yeah. turns out that one of the closets, at least, is also a doorway to who knows what. <laughs> like, like it's got a you know. Buzak only knows. Yes. So, <laughs> anyway, you know. It's, as Severian sees it, this is the first time he's been alone. And maybe Jonas was close on his heels riding the merry ship while he was out, you know, looking for Thecla. But Severian is now standing completely alone in Aniri's presence chamber, I guess, looking at a reflection of himself in one of those mirrors. Mm -hmm. There's no one here. There's no one he's on his way to meet. Theoretically, he's going to eventually get to Dorcas, but he's not even planning to go see her first. And like you said, he's thinking about how often he's been surrounded by uh, others. But yeah, he does think about Talos's theater troupe, who he actually saw, remember, on the way mm -hmm. to the antechamber. 
he says. Uh, first, there's a cool line here. The disease of memory gained upon me. So again, talking about memory is kind of mm-hmm. an affliction, right? Right. That he's, he's overwhelmed with this stuff. So the disease of memory gained upon me, and I saw the sharp silhouette of Dorcas, the giant, and the others that I had seen them when Jonas and I were being led through the plum grove. There had been men with animals as well, and performers of other kinds, all of them no doubt going to that part of the grounds where, as Thecla had often told me, the outdoor entertainments were held. So stupidly, I think, he starts searching the presence chamber for his sword. <laughs> I mean, does this look like, you know, a lost and found? So that's, and that's a good point, because the, the whole thing about the stupidity of looking here for his sword and just kind of like assuming my sword's got to be around somewhere close. That's one thing that's always sort of bugged me about this chapter (laughs) and also about how he finds it in the end. And I feel like how he finds it is sort of very intentionally supposed to be lucky and random, but yeah, everything here about like, just and this is that thing that Wolf often does, where you can be in the midst of all kinds of craziness, and a character will get really, really focused on the sort of minutia and literal step by step processes of some action, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like there's so many times where you'll be in the midst of some crazy huge crisis point or something. And all of a sudden a character will be like, well, this is how we're going to steer the boat. If you push (laughs) into the wind just a little bit here, then you'll do that. And sometimes people will be like, well, yeah, but he's an engineer. So he's going to be fascinated by that. Yeah. But he's also a storyteller. He knows what's important to talk about. And here we're in the middle of this place. We've just seen Jonas disappear the antechamber is all around us. We just had this horribly strange story. And so what does Severian do? He starts thinking about, Hmm, where would someone have put my sword? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know, yeah, the character he's supposed to, you know, the sword is very important to him. He's going to talk about how it's his identity when he does find it again, and how he feels like a, a a real person again, but still the over-focus on those details seems to me like they're very intentionally not trying to talk about things that are much yeah. more important. Or I think that's probably true. Time. And that's how I feel like this whole chapter is kind of doing that. So, Of course, you know, he's kind of in a spot. He could wait till he finds Dorcas and then he's part of the theater troupe and then he could ask people questions, but then he would have to reveal that he's an escapee, mm-hmm. right? He, so yeah. he can't ask for help, so to speak. He wants to get that sword and <laughs> he feels like he yeah. can't really move on without it. Yeah. And he does. It is interesting that when he does get the sword at the end, he talks about, I wasn't just a man again. I was actually a member of the guild. Yeah. And so it's getting that sword is not just like getting his tool or his weapon or whatever. It really is sort of his mark of his identity, his of identity, his and purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also kind of a, a, a pass to walk through and and be safe by by mm-hmm. wandering around again because he can claim a certain status. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I get all that. That for him to find that sword is incredibly important for him not to be put back in the prison, right? Yeah, um, but also just to have an identity, right? And so if you contrast that whole thing about having an identity, then for him being here, like to say I was alone. I feel like it's really emphasizing that this is the first time maybe he really was really alone. Feeling like very vulnerable, right? Yeah. Feeling vulnerable and without without purpose and without any of the things that kind of make him who he is. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a kind of existential crisis for little Severian here. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's, it's, it's not here in the presence chamber. And then he thinks, well, you know what? 
they probably store the stuff they take in some room near the antechamber on the same level. I remember that he and Jonas descended several flights of stairs after they entered the secret door. Those stairs that came down will, you know, just get him back up to the antechamber. So that's no good. So he leaves the presence chamber by a different door. And that leads to another room filled with, quote, curious objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Severian seems to recognize that whatever the objects are, they aren't being taken from Praetorian captives. And he might have gone through the other rooms, but he doesn't say so or describe them. Or, you know, maybe he hung out in this room looking at the weird objects. But he says, eventually, I found a door that opened onto a dark and quiet corridor, carpeted and hung with paintings. I remember that Rudison Mm. said that, yeah, remember Rudison said that these are the paintings that are popular now. They cycle the paintings out of the Citadel when they don't meet the current tastes. So he puts on his mask, which the Praetorians apparently did not take, and then he pulls his cloak around himself. The only thing I remember is that he talks about the statue's face kind of going in and out of the trees. Mm, yeah, yeah, walking yeah. Walking around. But yeah, he's, when they see the little road and like when they're right next to the lake, the the path of the road when he realizes he's on the grounds of House Absolute. Yeah, he's also describing these sort of manicured fields and all kinds of things. Right. So it's, yeah. I always kind of imagine it as like they were on the edge of a forest somewhere or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know exactly how to picture of the grounds of the house absolutely well speaking of those praetorians i don't think we mentioned that you know when he encounters them that with their little reflective armor they're kind of like playing cards right with the red queen yeah 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 yep yep little uh i mean we talked about alice in wonderland but i don't think we mentioned that they were playing cards Uh, anyway the praetorians didn't seem to know anything about the guild but he hopes that the people here in house absolute will know about it and treat him with a degree of deference and not have him arrested for whatever Mm -hmm. reason you know he never gets challenged he says some rich dudes saw him and quote drew aside so his clothes meant something to them um some pretty women stared at him as a curiosity but did nothing more house absolute is big enough and varied enough that no one looks strange enough to come off as an outsider mm-hmm. he does say quote i felt thecla's memories stirring at the sight of their faces so i guess you know thecla knew them yeah one other thing that means about everybody just kind of looking at him weirdly is that this whole thing of throwing the prisoners in the antechamber just seems random like Mm. it makes it seem even more random and the way that odillo in a minute is going to talk about oh yeah nobody's really watching what these praetorians do (laughs) when they're doing stuff just makes it feel like it's even more random who they just kind of decide to throw in the antechamber uh it's just oh which makes it even more frightening yeah i mean they're just basically living off of whatever they uh, you know money they steal from the people they aren't interested in anything else yeah finally we don't know how long it takes he comes to a stair it's a, quote, broad, open flight of wide steps. He goes up, looks around on the next level until he's certain he's still at a lower level than the antechamber, and then he continues to ascend the stairs. On the way up, he passes a woman coming down. Their eyes meet. Aha, it's the false Thea from House Azure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he has a memory that they'd met like this before, even though she doesn't know who he is. 
Yeah. And this is such a cool thing to do to make it even stranger that he's in this weird place. Nobody knows who he is, but of course he's going to run into someone who he recognizes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but remember also he's wearing his mask. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's no way she's going to recognize him anyway. But of course, as Severian remembers, she was descending the stairs when they locked eyes at House Azure. Yeah. And remember, too, this is another one of those moments of symmetry. Like I said, there's all kinds of things in this chapter where things are symmetrical or repeated or reflected. Mm -hmm. And this is precisely one of those that it's remembering back to another time where we were on a stair and we were in the same situation and we looked at each other just like this. But he doesn't really know what it means. It's just kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. I'm I'm anxious to apply a first Severian uh, interpretation to this, but you can do that on your own. So I can't do everything for you. <laughs> Severian mentions her, quote, cooing voice, the voice like doves, doves and her heart shaped face and, quote, the consort of Vodalus. And he says that it was, quote, the woman who looked like her and no doubt borrowed her name, whom I had passed on the stair in House Azure. So Severian decides, quote, harlots then, as well as entertainers, have been summoned for whatever feat was being organized. A feat is a festival or feast or an elaborate party. But, of course, we know that False Thecla is a kybit, a shadow woman. She lives here in House Absolute, and she only visits House Azure at the Autarch's command and serves as a prostitute for his side gig. Right. So the fact that Thea still has a kybit running around, even though she's, of course, run away, right? She is, I would assume, just like Thecla now, disgraced and not, you know, a, a polite member of society. But they still keep her copy around as, as a plaything, which just seems a little weird to me. Like, I would have thought that once Thea is known to be Vodalus's consort, that they would also take the, the kybit away because... I thought the whole point was to to have copies of these women that are untouchable. But who knows? Maybe she's maybe she's not just the copy of Thea. Maybe she's maybe she can stand in for other women too. I don't know. But that that was just one thing that I wondered about. I mean, there's nothing in the book that says that <laughs> the yeah. have to not be copies of yeah people who are no longer at the house absolute. But but I don't know. It just seemed like an odd. Well, Gurlo says that they are there as substitutes for the autark having his way with uh, yep. the actual captives. But we do find out later that they have some personal use for the, the exultants themselves. I mean, they're still mm-hmm. valuable property. I, I'm coming to believe that they don't have any rights as persons, you know, kind of like uh, Ern A. Smith in the, uh, in a, in a borrowed man, right? Oh. The, yeah. So, which in which case, you know, the Autark can tell them to do whatever he wants. And, you know, presumably so could the exultants. But if you if you kill them, I think maybe that would be like, you know, a loss of property. You'd have to mm. you'd have to could pay the, the exultants back for or the family, the household for, for what you, you've lost. Anyway, that's the that's all interwoven with my <laughs> other theories about yeah. what's going on. But yes, yeah, what I, it, it seems to explain why the author can just say, come with me, be a prostitute, be with these people, do this, do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is risky to be a prostitute. She's been beaten before, according to Severian. Yeah. Right? yeah. 
So he finishes climbing and then he realizes that he's almost exactly where the Astari were standing when he was talking to Nickery when while getting pastries from the silver cart. He's just outside the antechamber. Okay, so now he has to be careful. He doesn't want to get recognized and thrown back in. And that would be inconvenient. So he plays it cool. He walks slow. On his right is a wall with, quote, a dozen or more doors, each framed and carved woodwork. And each, as I saw when I stopped to examine them, spiked to its frame and sealed with varnish of years. In other words, these doors have not been used by design for a long time. Remember, the antechamber used to be multiple rooms where the walls were broken down into a larger room, which became the antechamber. So these doors were to those rooms that were you know, lost in the same way. So they're not used anymore. On the left wall, there's only one door, a big one made of, quote, warm, gnawed wood. On the other side of this door is a grotto with the giant green chimes. Opposite this door on Severian's right is the entrance to the antechamber. The door works, but on the wall beyond that is just, you know, doors leading up to it that are another row of doors that are spiked shut. All right. So Varian figures that the antechamber continued to grow as more people filled it and just ate up the various rooms and the entire ring. So if that's the case, I think it's cool that the antechamber was right in, I think at least, unless he really did walk far away, that the antechamber was actually in Aenerys, Aenerys part of, yeah. or his wing. Right? Exactly. So is is it the waiting room for Aeneri? Like the people were waiting for, you know, an audience with him. Um, it would mm. almost make more sense that he's so weird and forgetful that that's why people <laughs> ended up having to stay here. Yeah, forever. great things a lot. <laughs> or where he could keep awkward things, right? Like like if, if somebody gets summoned from the mirrors in the wrong place, I can just go send him over there. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, well, no, Odillo does say that not everybody who leaves the antechamber uh, entered it. So, yeah. 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 So... But that's one thing that popped up when the way he describes it is that it used to be all these other chambers, but now it, it took over this whole floor. But it does seem to be right next to Aeneri's place rather right, than... Right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's conveniently close. There's a secret door that goes directly to his presence chamber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now this is a risky place to hang around, but there's no one around. Uh, Severian takes some time to lean against the newel post of the stairs to think. Uh, apparently, this is a spiral staircase because a newel post is the vertical support at the center of a circular staircase. So, so Severian considers that while two of the Praetorians had guarded him, there was one who was carrying Terminus Est. So while they were being thrown into the antechamber, this third guy would move in the direction toward where he would have put the sword. Yeah, he's like a detective here. He's trying to figure it out what might have us breathe. It, it does work. So who am I to judge? But, you know, wait, no, the guy had dropped behind when they entered the grotto. So he goes through the door on the left, the one opposite the door to the antechamber, the worm gnawed door to the grotto with the giant chimes. And there's a musty odor from the corridor. He hears the gongs clanging. It's immediately very dark when he enters the grotto. The only light is from the glowing fungi on the walls of the grotto. Yeah, which is cool. And there, there's always like weird light sources in this one. Yeah, like there's right. that. Yeah. There's the weird way, thing he comments on in the closets when we mm-hmm. get there. Yeah. 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 And he can't see the walls themselves. 
Severian likens them to corpse candles. Remember in Shadow, when Severian buried his coin, he had a reference to corpse candles as a thing in Severian's world. And it's still difficult for me to know exactly what he meant. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe they're like glow sticks, a, a light that doesn't emit, you know, surround, surrounding light, but just kind of glows. Yeah. I still think it's candles made from dead people's wax. <laughs> dead people's fat is wax, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, there's a circular opening above him where the statues were looking down and it's filled with stars. He backs out of the grotto and closes the door. It's apparently pretty stiff and scratching against the floor, despite all the Praetorians entering and exiting, because he describes it as, quote, grating it shut. I guess he doesn't see any point in exploring the grotto. He'd only wander into the gardens above and run into more Praetorians. And then suddenly he hears footsteps up the stairway that he'd used. It's too late to run and hide. The door is too heavy to open and shut. So he decides to just stand there and bluff his way through. And I guess he's just afraid of being back so close to the antechamber, Mm -hmm. right? Because he had passed other people before, but now, now he's scared. Yeah. Right. So who is it? It's a quote, plump man of 50 or so dressed in livery. That's a uniform, like a butler or something. Uh, Clothes that, you know, to designate him as part of the household staff. And when he sees him, he's aghast to see him in this hallway. I mean, he's at the doorway of the house absolute prison, right? So the guy rushes toward him, bowing to him as he goes, even when he's still 20 or 30 paces away. He says, can I help you, Your Honor? I am Odillo, the steward here. You, I can see, are on a mission of some confidence to Father Aniri. He sees Severian's official but strange clothes and puts two to two together and says, uh, one of Father Aniri's people. Which is a whole kind of people, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there should be a book, Father Aniri's people. That would yeah. be. I don't think Severian ever mentions taking off his mask. No, in fact, I, I know he doesn't. He doesn't really take it off until the next chapter. So maybe he's wearing it in order to give him you know, official authority. So Severian thinks fast. He says, yes, I am. But first, I must require my sword of you. So maybe Adelo saw the Praetorians carrying the sword, and he could just say, oh, it's right over here. But no luck. He just looks at him in confusion. Severian continues with his ruse. I was escorted here earlier. At that time, I was told I would have to surrender my sword, but that it would be restored to me before Father Aniri required me to use it. Uh, Most of that is technically true. Odillo doesn't think that sounds credible. I assure you, in my position, I would have been informed if any of the other servants... Severian interrupts him. I was told this by a Praetorian. Well done, Severian. He's hit on a group that Odillo also has a prejudice against. Stupid Praetorians. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Servant class versus the warrior class. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I ought to have known. They've been everywhere, answering to no one. He explains that there's a big to-do right now because there's an escaped prisoner, as Severian has probably already heard. Now, Severian, and a first-time reader, supposes that this escaped prisoner is Severian himself. Mm-hmm. But Odilla immediately explains that it's Buzak. That's, you know, remember, 
uh, Hathor's uh, little friend that Severian just briefly met out in the road. They say he's not dangerous, but he and another fellow were found lurking in an arbor. This Buzek made a dash for it before they locked him up and got away. They say they'll take him soon. I don't know. I'll tell you, I've lived in our house absolute all my life, and it has some strange corners. Some very strange corners. <laughs> no kidding, Adela. So reading this this time makes me wonder, does Odillo know the guy and know that he's going to go escape and run away? I mean, he doesn't seem particularly worried about a prisoner escaping. Well, it's not um, his job to worry about no, it. I know, but he's, but then he's just like, well, I don't know that they'll ever find him here unless it's still, again, the thing of, yeah, I, those stupid Praetorians are going to get <laughs> outsmarted. Um, but I don't know. Just another, everything about Buzek always confuses me. Like anything he's around just seems mm-hmm. weird. Like it seems like Odillo would want them to capture this prisoner who might be, you know, he said they might not be dangerous, but. He's like, oh, no, but he's going to go hide in the walls. I'm like, well, I don't want anybody hiding in the walls of the house where I live, but whatever. I don't know. Well, let's be honest. They have a lot of things living in those walls. So. I guess that's true. <laughs> yeah. The wolves and other yes. things. Yeah. Right, exactly. He's, you know, you just get used to that, some things. So, But Severian says, well, well, maybe his sword is in one of those strange corridors that Odillo knows about. Would Odillo look? He took a half step back as though I had raised my hand to him. Oh, I will, Your Honor, I will. I was only trying to make a bit of conversation. It's it's probably down here, if you'll just follow me. So Adillo seems horrified that someone might think he isn't being helpful. Yeah, or it could be the thing of, like, he doesn't want you to think that I forgot what you had asked me to do. Yeah, said, right. Oh, I, I will take orders. I'm just, I'm, I'm talkative. <laughs> yeah, I'm just talking your ear off. And right? maybe too, he's terrified of Father Neri's people. Like he didn't seem concerned that mm-hmm. right outside of a prison, somebody's like, hey, you need to get my weapon for me. It was taken right. away from me. Which if you're right outside of a prison door, you might, I but, don't know. Yeah. And there's an escape convict. But Odillo is just yeah. like, maybe, yeah, Father Neri's people are weird. And I don't like mm-hmm. the Praetorians and. Yeah. yeah, you know, like like the Magic Tower, it's not a prepossessing place. You just... <laughs> but it's just a whole context where nothing seems to really follow exactly what you might think it should. Yeah. So there's a, a touch of Kafka going on here. Yeah, like, yeah. There's nobody... Yeah. Once you get past the Praetorians, it's anything goes in this place. And mm-hmm. no one seems to care. So, you know, they, they walk toward the stairs at the other end of the hall. Now... This stairway goes up and maybe down too. I, I'm imagining a set of circular stairs on either end of the hall that lead up to this floor and continue twisting to the next level. And under these stairs is a narrow door that Severian missed. It was painted white, nearly the same color of the stone that make up the walls here. It's Harry Potter's room. <laughs> so Adillo pulls out a heavy ring of keys and unlocks the door. Inside is a triangular room that's bigger than Severian expected. It goes well underneath the steps, and it even has headroom for a loft in, in the back that you can reach by a, quote, shaky ladder. So it's, it's bigger on the inside. And it has the same kind of electric lamp that they use in the antechamber, but this is dimmer. And Odilo says, wait. I'll get a candle. The regular light isn't very useful. Now, in this closet are piles of clothes and shoes. 
there's quote a pocket fork which here i assume is like a pocket knife but a fork instead there's a pin case a case to hold your quills there's also a pomander ball i'm not going to get fancy here i'm just going <laughs> to quote from wikipedia a pomander from the french pomme d'amber that is an apple of amber, is a ball made for perfumes such as ambergris, hence the name, musk or civet. The pomander was worn or carried in a vase as protection against infection in times of pestilence because, you know, it was believed that disease was spread by bad smells. Or merely as a useful article to modify bad smells because, you know, our ancestors' urban lives were pretty stinky. The globular cases which contain the pomanders were hung from a neck chain or belt or attached to the girdle and were usually perforated in a variety of open work techniques and made of gold or silver. Sometimes they contained several partitions in each of which was placed a different perfume. And people have probably seen the plague doctor in the last couple of years, right? It seems like plague doc, the, the medieval or Renaissance plague doctor mm-hmm masks are all over the place of so the weird beaked uh beaked masks that mm-hmm. um yeah if you if you don't know but if you've seen some of these guys with their weird hats but the whole idea of the the plague doctor masks were it was like a long nose but really what you did was you put perfume or herbs or something in there as you're walking around in the plagued areas so we get the bad for, smells exactly right. and it, that's the thing it's not that it was just for unpleasantness and and to not have to smell it it was actually seen as a way to protect yourself from right. the disease and the plague you know? so adillo explains that this is quote a closet for petitioners originally when he says petitioners of course he meant those poor people who get thrown into the amphitheater mm-hmm. coats hats and boots you know those things always fill up with the things the lucky ones forget to take with them when they go, the, the, the lucky ones are apparently people who do get released. So apparently it does happen, right? Yeah, but I love how that's such a weird thing. It's not that here's where we throw all the stuff from the prisoners. It's the stuff that, oh, when they leave, the lucky people just forget <laughs> to take their stuff with them. Yeah. Right. So it's rare enough that they are called lucky, but it's not that rare. And he goes on, he says, and then this wing has always been Father Aneris. That is to say, a lot of people come to this wing the antechamber in order to, you know, petition Father Aniri, not just the autarch. And he says, and I suppose there's always been some that came to see him and never came back, as well as ones that came out, what never came in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. This is a place where people come to petition Father Aniri as well. And I suppose that's, like I said, I, that's probably the point of the secret door. When people enter through the mirrors, they exit through the antechamber and then through the grotto, you know. That's my guess. Odillo says that when he was a kid, the, quote, kitchen boys, perhaps young staff who worked in the kitchen or the children of the kitchen employees, when he was a kid, the kitchen boys would pick the lock and come in there to rummage for cool stuff. Odillo put a stop to that when he was put in charge. And we'll learn that his father, whose name was also Odillo, had the job of steward before him. Anyway, Odillo put a good lock on the door, but he says, quote, the best things disappeared long ago. There's <laughs> such a cool little detail about I'm going to fix something that by now doesn't really. <laughs> he's, he's pretty much uh, shutting the barn door after the horses have gotten mm-hmm. out. 
Anyway, he had to give those soldiers keys to the doors or else when they were looking for Buzek, they'd have kicked the doors down. So Odilo figures they might have put the sword in this closet. And it makes sense. They'd have done that because they treated Severian as, quote, a petitioner. But the only thing he finds is a, quote, ancient spadone, uh, maybe from one of the original petitioners, maybe from, uh, you know, Kim Lee Sung brought it. Mm -hmm. A spadone is a two-handed long sword. Alternatively, ironically and unlikely, it's also a term for a eunuch. I'd like to get the the word history on that. (laughs) Well, if it's not here... It's probably in the guard room. Odello can give him directions or he can wake up a page to take him there. The guard room would not be a good idea. Severian decides to check the loft. He takes the candle and climbs the rickety ladder. He doubts the Praetorian would have put it there, but, you know, what are you going to do? The thing is that Severian just wants to check about his options for hunting down Terminus Est. Mm-hmm. When, when Severian looks up in this loft... There he sees Busek, the mysterious guy traveling with Hathor. He remembers that he had been, quote, kneeling in an attitude of intense supplication. Severian had failed to remember that Busek, the guy the soldiers were looking for, was the name of the guy Hathor was traveling with. And likely the first time reader had forgotten that too. Mm-hmm. But here again, you know, when we have a way that a memory might be there, but still out of reach, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that people will point to as saying he lied about his perfect memory, but it's more that he just didn't think of it, call it, or yeah, he didn't yeah, try didn't to recall. Have, he has to, he has yeah. to go up, run the tape back, and then he can remember it all. So that's why it seems like it works. Severian had the memory of Buzek, but he he lacked the connection to Hathor in order to bring it to mind. And in chapter 18, Severian has Thekla's memories of the antechamber, but in order to make use of that knowledge, he needs the context that it meant to Thekla, which is something not quite so different from Severian's oubliette. So Dillo asks him if he sees anything, and Severian says, rags, rats, because, you know, Severian's no rat. He's not going to tell on Buzak. It could also just be literal. Yep, he's wearing rags. And yeah, he's yep. like a rat. That's all, all very true. Yeah. Yeah. So just think for a minute about how creepy, weird an image that is. Like to climb up a ladder and all of a sudden you see a guy just crouching there, like <laughs> looking at you almost like, like, don't say anything. And just, and he never does say a word, right? And he no. just stares at him like he's supplicating or wait, does he actually, does it say he actually stares at him or does it just say he's crouching? Um, um, I shoot, think let me find, I got to find the actual. I think, it, yeah, he does. I mean, he does bring up that he remembers him crouching in supplication, but I don't think. And I saw the small man who had been with Heather on the road kneeling in an attitude of intense supplication. Maybe, that's yeah, it. I guess you're right that he's, he's we kneeling don't know. to Severian now, right? Or maybe I he remembers him or maybe he thought the same thing. Maybe he's in the same position as before. He's, yeah, he's in an attitude of intense supplication, but that's all it says. Like, is he kneeling towards Severian? Is he just meditating? <laughs> but is, is he, he doing it now, out? or is he doing it? Is 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 he remembering him kneeling in an attitude of tense supplication before? Is he doing it now, or is he doing uh, it in both? I senses? don't think he had mentioned him kneeling before. I could be wrong, mm. but I could go check. But I think it means that he's 
crouch down here now. Um, But it's just such a, such a, this image always sticks in my mind of climbing up a ladder, seeing a dude and just neither one of you says anything. (laughs) And then he just climbs down and leaves. And I mean, at least it's, you're right. He's not a rat. So he's, he's gonna, he's not going to rat him out. He's going to, you know, let him run and, Mm -hmm. and hide. And he does come back in a minute. Right. When he can, he does come back and check on him mainly to wonder if like, Hey, did you get my sword? (laughs) Probably just, but, um, but yeah, but just such a strange thing, especially for this dude who we know nothing about. Like we know he's a Heather person, but again, this is just, I mean, to me, this is still just such a weird chapter of just things that are just slightly lateral to what they ought to be. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you something we know about him. He is a skilled lock picker because Odillo has to unlock the door to this closet. So very end to get back in, he has to break the lock to get back inside. Buse. I wonder, did he come in through the door or did he come in through somewhere else in the walls? Does he have he's... his own keys? I don't yeah, know. Well, I don't know. And Severian wonders later, like, had he been stuck in the walls and then mm-hmm. just, just came out in this spot because he could stretch out a little bit. Right. And then goes back in the walls. I, I don't Who knows, dude? <laughs> I, I truly do not do not understand Buzak. And, <laughs> I don't I don't claim to know who Buzak is. Yeah. I don't claim. So Severian tells Odello that he'll go to the guardroom himself rather than having a page sent. O- Odello thinks that's a good idea because they might not hand it over to a page or even admit that they had it. Odello explains that this wing of the House Absolute is quote the hypogeum apotropaic. Now Hypogean is literally, it just means underground. But the American Heritage Dictionary of English language has a couple of definitions of hypogean. It's an ancient subterranean burial chamber, like a catacomb. Hmm. But its first definition is a subterranean chamber of an ancient building. And I find it interesting that both of these definitions focus on antiquity. And I'd like to see some literary, you know, etymological usage history on this word. It's, it's really interesting to me. Wordnick also included a citation from Smith's Bible dictionary. Quote, the only important hypogean, which is wholly Jewish in, this, in its arrangement and may consequently belong to an earlier epoch, is that known as the tombs of the prophets in the western flank of the Mount of Olives. So, hypogeum is the noun, and apotropaic is the qualifier. Now, apotropaic is the quality of something that has the power of averting evil influence, like an amulet or a mojo created to avert the evil eye or to ward off evil spirits. And the most surface explanation of this term, I think, is that this is the wing of the underground prison. And this is where they contain people with, quote, evil influences. Father Aniri's mirrors are here, too. Perhaps this wing is expected to contain, you know, any bad things that come out of them. People have come up with more involved explanations for this as well, such as that it was originally an underground defensive bunker, or perhaps that this is where Father Aniri keeps the strategizing of the Megatherians in check. All that could be true as well. I, I don't have a strong opinion. And it is true, too, that all of House Absolute is a hypogeum in some way or another, right? It's yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'd so, be but, redundant to say so. Yeah. Yeah. But 
the way Odella says it is he's like, you're in the hypogeum apotropaic as, now, as I suppose you know. And so, but then he says, he mentions that. So if you don't want to be stopped by the patrols, you'd better go indoors. So he's saying like, you know, you're in a place where they're going to stop you, right? If, right? if you're around. So you're in a place where they expect there to be threats, which could possibly explain why the Praetorians are allowed to run around and mm -hmm. catch people. But yeah, so this is a strange, scary place. And I think once you look up apotropaic that, yeah, something about this place is scary, or at least <laughs> yeah. is supposed to be preventing scary things from coming in. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Warding off evil. Yeah. Well, from Odillo's heir's testimony in Earth of the New Sun, we can infer that Odillo is the steward specifically of the Hypogeum Apotropaic, which makes him primarily in the service of Father Aniri. And so I suppose that chapter 20 of Shadow, when Domnina is taken by a uniformed servant to Father Aniri's mirrored room, that is Odillo. We also know from Earth of the New Sun that the Autarch's throne room is the Hypogeum Amaranthine. So uh, Hypogeum can be thought of as a wing. But yeah, the, the way we know it's all underground, but it seems here like the way he's using it is like a wing. And Yeah, yeah. The Hypogeum just means a wing of the House Absolute, right? Yeah, a wing of the underground House Absolute. Yeah. yeah. Because all of, yeah, like you say, all of House Absolute is underground. Amaranthine mm -hmm. means undying or unfading. Uh, we've already you know, discussed this word in shadow, I think, Amaranth. And that would seem to be a good kind of word for the leader, for Autark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, Amaranthine is a word apparently coined by John Milton, derived from the Amaranth, a mythical, unfading flower. Oh, cool. Right. So since Severian says he's going to the guardroom himself, Odillo gives him directions he warns him not to, like you said, take the outside route because he'll be stopped by patrols. So he says, you go up the stairway opposite to the one that he climbed, I think, up for three flights, and that's how far down they are. Then turn left, and I guess, you know, the wall has pictures on them because he says, quote, follow the gallery around for about a thousand steps until you come to the hypothrall. Now, he doesn't define this term for Severian, but luckily, I'm here. It's a Latin portmanteau of two Greek words, hypo, meaning under or beneath, like a hypodermic needle, means a needle that is inserted under the skin, and also the Greek word aether, meaning air or heaven, so under the sky. Hyperthrall is a room or structure that's open to the sky, like uh, the Citadel Chapel or a dome or an observatory. Yeah. So uh, Odilla warns that Severian might miss the hypothrall, so he should watch for the plants, uh, you know, whatever that means, mm -hmm. and then turn right into the hypothrall and walk uh, 200 paces, feet, I suppose. I wonder, oh, just one tiny thing, but I wonder if, yeah, instead of thinking of it like a gondola or something like that, maybe it was, maybe it's supposed to be like a room made of plants, like it's open air, but it's actually a room of plants. Because then he says, yeah, look for the plants. Well, look for the plants. Yeah. Well, we never get there. This is all pointless exposition because yes. Severian is never going yeah. to the guard room. <laughs> and never would unless he absolutely had to. But he thanks Adillo and then runs up the stairs while Adillo is locking the door. And then he ducks out of sight while Adillo passes him and then goes back downstairs to the antechamber hallway. 
So, all right. If the sword was taken to the guard room, so Varian figures he's only going to get it back by burglary or killing people. So before he tries that, he's going to make darn sure it's not right here outside the antechamber where they put the stuff that belongs to prisoners of the antechamber, which, of course, he was. And maybe Buzak saw it while he was, you know, looking for a place to hide. And he figured that by now, the prisoners in the antechamber had found the secret door that they'd left open. They're probably running around free. One would be caught, and soon the guards would be running around looking everywhere for them. He doesn't realize that the little girl saw it, used it, shut the door behind her, and that's what I suppose. <laughs> right? So he goes back to the closet. He puts his ear to the door and listens for Busek moving about. He doesn't hear anything. So he calls for his name. Not too loud. He tries pushing his shoulder to the door. He doesn't want to make too much sound. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to make too much noise, though. But there's that thing that Vodalus gave him, the, the steel thing that's shaped like a knife. I don't think he's ever mentioned still having it. He wedges it into the crack of the door and splits the lock, as he says. Basically, he broke the door itself at the location of the lock. Unfortunately, Buzek is gone. Severian looks around and he finds a hole in the, one of the walls. Now, Severian doesn't know this from personal knowledge, but people say that in the walls of the House Absolute, there are white wolves descended from the regular wolves of the nearby forests that dwell here. What do they live on? I suppose there's a whole ecosystem back there. Uh, maybe Buzek was eaten by them. Who knows? Just because I can't remember, I'm checking, but does he talk about those wolves again in at the end of Earth when he there's the assassin? Does he mention? Oh, my flight from the white wolves in the secret house. Yeah, let's see. So the white wolves in, in Earth, uh, we do find out that one of the things that the people in House Absolute do is they do hunt wolves. Mm -hmm. right? They hunt the white wolves in the walls of the House Absolute. And also at some point, Severian has a memory of being chased by these wolves in the walls of the House Absolute. So he has a lot of stories about white wolves that uh, don't come up here or anywhere, yeah. really. And all kinds of things happen in these quarters because he he does say and also in that same chapter of earth he when he's wandering around in the in the the quarters he says or the, not the quarters of time but the quarters of the secret house he's like, how strange and yet how good it was to thread those narrow passages once more their suffocating constriction and padded ladder-like steps summoned up a thousand memories of gambades and i guess that's trists. how you pronounce that gambades <laughs> and trysts Coursing the white wolves, scourging the prisoners of the antechamber, re-encountering Oringa. I've forgotten who that was. Yeah, I, <laughs> but, I think this um, is all. These are all Thecla's memories. Thecla's right? memories. Yeah. So yeah. that's where. And I wonder there though the way it's phrased is it could be that they hunted the wolves in the walls. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe coursing them there. Yeah, which is kind of cool. But I don't know what Odile is doing. That doesn't really explain <laughs> anything that Odile or, is doing in the wall. No. I mean Buzek. Buzek. Yeah. What Buzek is doing in the walls or how he knew about them, if he knew about them at all, don't know. Yeah. Well, I've, yeah. But that is an interesting possibility that Buzek actually did know about the walls and the wolves and immediately, the... or at least he knew about the, the secret, the second mm -hmm. house and knew to run to that. How to escape. escape. Yeah. Which if so, who the hell is he? I killed him. <laughs> yeah. Who knows how he got into the, the, 
yeah, I, I assumed he picked the lock, but now you're right. He could have just yeah. been traversing through the walls. The point is that Music, you know, disappeared into the walls of House Absolute, and that's the last we know of him. The last Severian knows of him, and as far as I can tell, he came from nowhere and disappeared into nowhere, and, and maybe we'll figure him out in the next four years or so. <laughs> Severian stipulates that, quote, that night he didn't seek to follow him. That might be something or nothing. Take your pick. The point is, Severian leaves the closet. He shuts the door and he tries to make the broken lock uh, look unnoticeable as he can. And then he notices something. We have the stairs on either side and the antechamber door in the middle and another door across from it. It seems to him that there's a sym symmetry to the architecture of this corridor. Now, Severian is thinking, this is Father Aeneri's hypogeum, his underground wing. Father Aeneri is all about his mirrors. Maybe this is his hypogeum because, at least a little bit, because the hallways have this mirror image quality. So if there's a closet here, there should be a closet on the other side. And of course, this uh, chapter is called Closets. And as we know, you know, a lot of times what's important about the title doesn't show up really in the chapter itself, but at the very end or the very beginning of the next chapter, right? Yeah. And Craig, consequently, this story breaks off because this is the end of this chapter. It breaks off in a very weird place. Right. I don't think it makes any sense. Actually, I think it does make sense in a sneaky Wolf way. I think Wolf is that his only purpose in breaking it off here is to occlude something. So I suggest, I suggest that we push on to the next chapter and finish this leg of the story. I think that's fair. But first I want to stop for just a second, because if you do stop here, you stop with that reminder that Inere likes mirrors and here's this strange symmetry to this part of mm -hmm. the building. And like you said, that's just a weird thing. And like I had said before, it seems like this is a lot of overdone explanation of how Severian <laughs> is like, and then I found the right closet that had my sword in it. <laughs> yeah. right? Like, like, it just seems like we're talking way too much about little details, just like those people who irritate me too much, who try to deal with the tiny minutia of how to get from point A to point B when the whole point is something else altogether. But right. Whatever. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. So what else could it be? Well, we do have a situation here where Severian has stared possibly face to face with someone who we know nothing about. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go too far with this, but it is possible that maybe this strange, weird Buzek who we're told absolutely nothing about and who we're, our attention is brought to him, even though we don't even know why or what he's doing with Heather who's already weird enough. Um, <laughs> but we're in this thing all about symmetry. We're in this chapter that starts off with Severian talking about how alone he feels, but maybe he needs a reflection somewhere. So I don't know if this deserves curiosity. So this music, but play it. Hold it. Hold it. Let me get on my little organ. <laughs> Curiositas Urthus. But, is there some suggestion that Buzek is some kind of version of Severian who's been hanging out with Heather 
for a long time. Maybe some alternate world Severian. Um, doesn't talk about looking like him at all. Um, I don't know. I like, like I said, I don't believe it, but that's oh. one thing I think you could point to to be like, well, music is so weird, he's got to mean something, but. <laughs> When you have this chapter that really emphasizes Severian was alone and I was defined by the other people I was with. Mm-hmm. And it's all about symmetry and mirrors. He's looking in mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. The one big thing here about this chapter that is, of course, a big confusion is Severian seeing this other weird guy. And he's coming eye to eye with him. him, right? Yeah. He's yep. crouching down. Severian's coming up the, the, the ladder, right? They're probably They're probably at eye level. And or he's at at intense supplication, right? Like he's bowing, maybe bowing down to him. What if he really was bowing down to Severian, bowing down to the new son because he knows what he is, Mm. right? I mean, Heather seems to be in awe of Severian. Maybe this guy knows too. Uh, Maybe it's because he's maybe not the first Severian. Maybe he's a different version of Severian. I mean, I, I don't know. But I do think that everything about this chapter is so understated and elusive Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in that weird way, but also suggestive of things that I feel like we're supposed to think about some kind of weird connection with Severian and someone else. Well, you know, I'm always a little nervous at the everyone is Severian theory, but it works structurally. Mm -hmm. And as we're going to see, I'm in no position to (laughs) to become real doubtful about this particular theory because I have my own crazy ideas about this chapter. And like I said, I don't necessarily buy it and because I don't really like it because I don't know what it would mean. But it's something I feel like I have to bring up as at least something that pops into your or should in some way or another pop into your head because otherwise I'm not really sure what I should be doing with all this other mirrors and symmetry imagery connected yeah. to that happens right at the same time as weird inscrutable music. No, it's so. the it's kind of the same situation that Severian is. He's, he looks at this, says there's mirrors here, there's mirrors there. Uh, there's a closet here. There must be a closet right over there. It's the same kind of thing with Buzek. Mirrors, 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 mirrors. Wait a minute. Why we have Severian and, and Buzek looking eye to eye here up in the closet? What, how, how does this fit in the chapter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell you what, Craig. Let's go on to the start of the next chapter and just see if anything pops up. All right. So, chapter 20, pictures. So, Severian runs to the other door. Well, this door has been smashed a long time ago, and that's the reason Odillo didn't take him there in the first place. It's not a useful place for storing anything safely. It's just... Not the lock either. The entire thing is smashed and there's just wood fragments hanging from the hinges. Now that Severian has broken both doors, it's fortunate that he'll soon become Autark and shut down the antechamber prison. The light doesn't work either. Inside, it's just darkness and spiders. I suspect Severian has a little bit of a fear of spiders. Now, and that you, the way you said it there, you said Severian broke both doors. We don't we don't know if he broke this this door, right? Well, no, no, but he's now they're both broken. They're both well. broken, right? Yeah, so yeah. when he's done it, but I was wondering, you know, we're, we've got all these other Severians going <laughs> Maybe on. sometime in the had, past, yeah. Have you made some logical leaps I hadn't followed? It's <laughs> entirely possible. So Severian starts to walk away from the door, and then he, quote, stopped, 
under the influence of that consciousness of error that often comes to us before we understand in the least what the error consists. He knows he's missing something, but he can't think of what it is he's missing. He thinks that he and Jonas came to the antechamber late in the day. That night, the exultants came with their whips. The next morning, Hathor was taken and Buzik ran away. Then Odillo gave the Praetorians the key to the closet so they could look for him. So the Praetorians did not have the key to the closet when Severian came. So they couldn't have put Terminus Est into the closet. So where? This closet, of course. Okay, Craig? Um, let me get on the organs. I also have a curiositus earthus cool. for two this chapter. One, yeah. Two in one show. That's, That's what happens cool. when you combine two different chapters and you get to <laughs> merge two curiositus earthus. Earthi. More symmetry. Yeah. More symmetry. Curiositas earthus. So, Craig, remember way back in chapter four of Shadow? I made such a big deal of Valeria quoting from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Mm -hmm. Viola, disguised as Serio, says, quote, I am all the daughters my father's, of my father's house and all the brothers too. And Valeria says, I am all the sisters we breed and all the sons. So Viola is speaking an untruth because she has actually a twin, Sebastian. But it's not a lie because she believes her twin Brother Sebastian, Viola, Sebastian, Valeria, Severian, has died at sea. So I have been saying Valeria is Severian's twin. It, you know, it has to be, I think. Now, in Twelfth Night, Sebastian has actually been in the care of pirates, probably aboard a ship called the Manichin. And Viola <laughs> goes into the service of uh, the household of a noble woman disguised, she's disguised as a man. And Sebastian shows up at this house with his best friend, a sailor. So I suggested way back then that if Wolf is go following Twelfth Night, as it seems he is, then Valeria should be disguised as Odillo. And Michael Andre Driussi gave me some light teasing over this in our first interview with him about his, you know, his new book of the new Sun chapter guide. However, structurally, this entire scene with Odillo hinges, as you say, on architecture, right? So structurally, this scene, like you say, mirrors the scene where Severian meets Valeria. Severian is looking for his dog and finds Valeria instead. Here, he's looking for his sword and finds Odillo instead. He doesn't meet Valeria anymore for a long time. He doesn't meet Odillo again for a long time. After they part, Severian finds his dog after he and Odillo part, Severian finds his sword. But all this is impossible. We meet Odillo's son in Earth of the New Sun. He talks a lot about his father. It seems impossible. And yet, that scene in Earth of the New Sun only wants to make me assert again that this is true. So, chapter 45, the boat. Odillo says, He says, I have observed, Odillo said, that in the course of life, events attain some nadir from which they are afterward elevated. 
That is, you know, death comes resurrection. Anyway, he goes on. The destruction of the House Absolute, the death of our beloved Autark, Valeria in this case, if she has not by the mercy of the Increate somewhere survived. It's variant answers. She has survived, I told him. Believe me. When he stared at me with his eyes filled with hope, I could only add weakly, I feel it. Severian is looking directly at Odillo as he says, she has survived. Believe me. Craig, somehow, Valeria is in Odillo. I know it. I can't say how it could be, but I know it. With the new models I've come up, I now believe that Hathor ate his entire crew, and Thecla is Severian's mother and his sister, and Severian's mother is the Autarch. Look, there are a lot of ways in this book that a character can be another character. So after we you know, did chapter four of Shadow, I checked out this chapter. I was looking for another mangled quote from Twelfth Night, and uh, you know, I didn't find it. <laughs> so if someone finds something from there, you know, I'd be grateful. But for me, no bueno. However, I did find this paragraph coming up right now at the end. Severian sees the door to the other closet has been long broken. He turns away and then he thinks the Praetorians didn't have the key to the other closet the night he and Jonas arrived at the antechamber. So Severian writes, I went back to the closet with the broken door again. By the scant light that filtered in from the corridor, it was apparent that it had been lined with shelves like its twin. Like it's what, Craig? <laughs> I don't know how, but Valeria is Odilla. She's in Odilla. I don't know. But this is a set point where we, the readers, are expected to do the work of connecting to the story. So that's something I've known that you think for a long time. And did we talk about that? Did did we mention that in the show? I know. No, no, we only talk about it. Well, I, I did kind of say maybe it's going to be Odello. I think I did say that, but okay. I didn't, I didn't talk about all this stuff, but except okay. to you on Slack. So when you first told me about this stuff, I just totally didn't buy it. I was like, <laughs> uh, okay, how do we get to that point? Um, because I think partly the way you presented it to us, Odilla was Valeria. And I'm mm-hmm. like, how yeah. do you get from, from one? Um, the thing is that in context, I, I, I still don't quite understand the direct connections there, but in the context, there's a whole lot of stuff that it can suggest that. Yeah. I, the way that chapters are written, the way that weird scene goes, um, there are suggestions. And I mean, let's be honest. Does anybody else have anything more plausible for Valeria? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Or Odilo. Here, look at this weird guy. He's, he's just like music. He shows up here. He goes off. We don't, he doesn't have any other role really in this story. No, and and Wolf has a weird liking for Odillo for this one weird servant guy. I mean, he's mm-hmm. in, he's in the cat. He's you know, he's yeah. There, he shows up a lot. So I I haven't quite written you a receipt for it yet, but <laughs> I'm but I'm I'm thinking about it. So, yeah, yeah. So all right, let's wrap this up. Closet is empty. Of the shelves, there is nothing but brackets. 
The shelves have been removed from it and repurposed elsewhere. And no guardsman is going to step into that cobwebby closet and get his uniform unnecessarily messy. So he puts himself in the place of that guard and he pokes only his head into the door and reaches around the door jam to the wall next to the door, a place completely hidden from view and in darkness. And yes, there it is. With an indescribable mingling of triumph and familiarity, felt my hand close upon the beloved hilt. I was a whole man again, or rather more than a man, a journeyman of the guild. There in the corridor, I verified that my letter from Palamon to the ruler of Thrax remained in the pocket of the sheath, then drew the shining blade, wiped it, oiled it and wiped it again, testing its edge with finger and thumb as I walked along. Now let the hunter in the dark appear. <laughs> he actually stops to oil the thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he doesn't, he doesn't doing... walk away. Yeah. Well, I don't even know where to go with that. There, <laughs> that's exhausting. Yeah. There's, we, we've thrown a lot of weird things out here for, for a chapter with that just is kind of like, where's my sword? How do I get to it? <laughs> Walking up and down stairs. Um, but there's a lot of things suggested. Like the the less that happens sometimes, the the more we, we might be wanting to make things happen. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, there's a lot here in this chapter that's suggested. So, but we will we'll do the rest of pictures later because there's plenty more to come up with in the rest of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chapter We're not done. That, that we should save. So, yeah, um, look, you got something better <laughs> or <laughs> as weird as the theories we've been throwing out today, then uh, I certainly hope you'll reach out to us with your ideas and your other comments, your thoughts, your corrections, your complaints, and that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, email, or the Patreon site. And you can find out how to do all that on the show notes leave a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or on Reddit, but do tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the mortar favor you. Take care. I got the devil in my closet And the wolf is at my door I got the devil in my closet man to do when you can't trust your woman no more my pride is very simple Simple bean. I'll just
strange, implausible theorizing this time. <laughs> yeah, you really did. You, <laughs> that is really good. <laughs> James is like, you're learning. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> so proud. He, and now he's a man. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Are you like, um, uh, what are you doing? Pot, cracking walnuts or something over there? Oh, sorry. I've been playing with a pen and I'm not oh. even thinking because I, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. And because I've got this new headset that I literally cannot hear anything around me. So I oh. have, so I'm making noise and not doing it. Hopefully I wasn't doing that while I was talking. If yes, you were, but that's uh, okay. okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's stop this. Yeah. And now it's like, yeah, nobody's paying attention. So that's. Uh oh, that's my. Uh, did you hear that? That's my dog. He's freaking out, Just and he's probably going to have to take a beating. So hang on. <laughs> oh, I should have said that. I should have done it this way. I can't believe I did that this way. Okay, let me try this again. Get okay. rid of that. That's fine. Mark it off. What I what I write is better. You will untie his strength with Abias, whose kingdom is in the warm waters. He will unite. Oh, sorry. He will unite his strength with <laughs> from Tolkien's letters. He said, Tolkien wrote, I did begin a story placed about 100 years after the downfall, but it proved both sinister and depressing. Since we're dealing with men, it's inevitable that we would be concerned with the most regrettable feature of their neighbor, nature, their quick satiety with good, so that the people of Gondor in times of peace, justice, and prosperity would become discontented and restless, while the dynasts descended from Aragorn would become just kings and governors like uh, Denethor, or worse. And I found that even so early, there was an outcrop of revolutionary plots about a center of a secret Satanistic religion, where, while Gondorian boys were playing at being orcs and going around doing damage. I also like how he always writes about his own stories as, I discovered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he... I he found really that... You, Guess what they I mean, did? <laughs> he talks about that all the time. I loved when I was reading the drafts of Lord of the Rings, I loved how he would, Christopher Tolkien would put in snippets from the letters to where you'd have the, the plot there. And sometimes like a draft really would stop, like right after a character was introduced. And right. Tolkien would later come back and be like, I was so amazed when this character just well, appeared. Yeah, he says about no Aragorn, right? I, I had no idea when they encountered him in the yeah, end who, who he was. was. Strider. <laughs> yeah. I actually liked Strider the Hobbit. Like when he was going to be just another hobbit, I thought it was kind of cool. But but yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'd forgotten that he said he was going to try and write later stories. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's sort of more the historian because you're like, well, isn't the story over at that point? And he's like, well, not not for him. He's still writing the Silmarillion. (laughs) I know. Did you ever read um, the uh, one thing he was working on at the end of his life? He wanted to completely rewrite the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. in the same style as lord of the rings and he got about three or four chapters in but it was completely got rid of the sort of kids kids book atmosphere yeah and it was um it was disappointing like i didn't like it at all but I, I thought it was interesting that he was gonna do that and i was really curious what he'd do with some of the other sections um that just didn't seem like they'd work if they weren't if you weren't yeah. reading a fairy tale you, know, you just so. gotta let it go at some point but i mean he did yeah. put a little bit of that it, when he changed the you know um bilbo's meeting with right. Gollum, right? right with Gollum. yeah i mean that's and it's a great scene you know the whole yeah. scene, thing with the just uh, um Gollum being so angry and mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah 
It's good. I took a whole class on versions of The Hobbit one time. <laughs> so that, have I ever shown you that that online university? Um, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. I, I audited a class that they did one time. It was so cool to read like a bunch of the kids' books that Tolkien had probably read at the time and go through all the drafts and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his encounter with Gollum in the rewritten version and with the conversation with Smog, those are definitely the the best parts. And those aren't, you know, light kitty kind of stuff. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Yeah. But no, it definitely is weird. Like, just like when Peter Jackson added all the stuff, like in all the sort of weird, the people in Lake Town and Mm -hmm. all the sort of selfishness. Yeah, just. It, it dirties up with such a beautiful little fairy tale book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't like that stuff. Yeah, it's fun to see. see. I liked it. It fit the Lord of the Rings world pretty well. I just didn't. Yeah, it's, but it's hard to even recognize the elves that, that you encounter in The oh, Hobbit yeah. as oh, yeah. the, the ones you encounter in, in Lord of the Rings. Oh, right? yeah. Like it even just, in the, the Rankin-Bass movie, like the way that they draw the elves are like these tarzan looking things where they're like just wearing leaves and stuff like that i mean they're yeah. nothing like uh yeah they're nothing like the high elves uh, yeah and, and uh you know bilbo you know part of his escape plan is he gets them drunk and they're just, mm-hmm. just they're just very unelf like you know? yeah. they're kind of they're well beyond you know regular humans or or or, yeah. or, or hobbits when you meet them in lord although i mean there's a little bit of that when he comes to the the last homely house right yeah yeah, but yeah, you still get Elrond, but it's yeah. funny. Yeah, he's a half elf, right? True, and true. Almost, count. In, <laughs> no, but in in the Hobbit, there's almost this sense that yeah, his his nobility is more from his man side mm-hmm. than his elf side. Yeah, yeah. Although he did give them, like he did have the names, like he did even in the first draft, he did give um the king of the elves the name. That yeah, connected him to Cimmerillion. So he was thinking that way, but then the way he made him act wasn't quite. Yeah, he's very well. You, yeah. you know, it's you get this the the idea of the enmity between the dwarves and the elves, and that's yeah. what that is there. So yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It just it it felt it's it's just not the the way you encounter the elves it, through Bilbo's eyes in that scene is just so different from the way you encounter every elf after yeah, that in yeah. Lord of the Rings. And even when it's through Frodo's eyes, right? But but mm-hmm. Bilbo was, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are ways you could try and explain it. Bilbo was a bit more of a shut-in mm-hmm. and a hick than, than Frodo was <laughs> in a lot of ways. But yeah. Well, and then maybe you know, he just got a bad introduction to elves the first time. Maybe if so. he'd met some of the other ones, it would have been different. I don't know. But yeah, but that was cool. They're like rereading when like to see how he tried to turn Hobbit into into something else and like how different the dwarves are when they show up. Like Unexpected Party is just such a weird, yeah, different chapter in that way that he wrote it. Because oh, it really? has none of the charm. <laughs> <It's Yeah>. just, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it just has none of the that sort of cool feeling of yeah. I mean, that's one thing he one doesn't the other. That's one thing he doesn't that he, I suppose he probably grappled with the fact is that if he wrote it the way he wrote it in Lord of the Rings, a lot of things that they did would not happen. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And it would never have sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they would have never asked for a sequel. No, no. I mean, it's, it's short. It's nice. I like, I like the Hobbit. Oh, I love the Hobbit. Uh, yeah. I think it's, I adore it, but no, you know, Tolkien was just, you know, he was a, he wanted everything to, to fit together. So right. Well, 
Yeah. And, and I think there's even part where he wrote something to try and explain away the different tone at one point, and he didn't like that. So he decided he was just going to have the Red Book just be rewritten, you know, or he was going to have there and back again, just be rewritten. And, mm-hmm. and so Bilbo was going to write it a different way, <laughs> which I mean, because yeah, in the very first edition, there are like mentions of trains and things like that. Like if, uh, the sound you hear of a train in the distance and stuff like that. You're not supposed to be allowed to just go around and change your, the versions of your stories once you've published no. them. That's, that's... No, but he did. But he did. Yeah. All right. Okay. Back. back to um, Hyperthrall. 